Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the 46th annual Common Ground Country Fair. We're so excited to be back in action here and so great to see everybody this morning. The Common Ground Country Fair is hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, known as MOFCA. And I'm Sarah Alexander. I'm the executive director of MOFCA and really excited to see you all here today. MOFCA was formed in 1971, and we work year-round to create a food system that is healthy and fair for all of us. Through education, training, and advocacy, MOFCA is helping farmers thrive, making more local organic food available, and building sustainable communities. We encourage you to visit the MOFCA tent right over here to learn more, and we're also excited to share that the MOFCA and the fair are entirely powered by the sun. We have a 102 kilowatt solar array on the grounds here that were installed in 27 and provide all the power for the fair and all the power we need year round. And we thanks, thanks to Revision Energy who partnered with us on that. MOFCA's campus is 300 acres situated in unceded Wabanaki homelands. MOFCA is working throughout the year to build relationships with Wabanaki communities, partner on food sovereignty projects, and advocate for Wabanaki tribal sovereignty. We're very excited to have Molly and Dana here as our keynote for the fair today. Yeah, welcome Molly Ann. Molly Ann is going to be sharing more about tribal sovereignty, and we also, everybody, to encourage their education beyond today's keynote. Um, here at the fair, we invite you to visit the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance tent right over here uh, to support Wabanaki artisans and learn more about Wabanaki culture. So I'm very honored to be introducing Molly Ann Dana, the tribal ambassador for the Penobscot Nation. She serves as the first appointed tribal ambassador for the Penobscot Nation and represents the tribe in local, state, and federal government as an advocate and a diplomat. Her background is in political science, activism, Penobscot culture, teaching, and policy. She serves as the president of the board of directors for the Wabanaki Alliance, the co-chair of the Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial and Indigenous and Maine Tribal Populations, and is a member of the Maine Climate Council, where she also co-chairs a subcommittee on equity. She has a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Maine, and she received an honorary law doctorate from Colby College. She is the proud mother of three daughters, Carmela, age 15, Layla, age 13, and Iris, who was just born this year on May 31st. Addressing and bringing action to the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, two spirits, and relatives is also one of her passions. And her policy achievements include helping to pass laws in Maine that eliminated racist Indian mascots, changed Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, and extended the Violence Against Women Act federal provisions to tribes in Maine. Dana's home, the Penobscot Nation, is one of five tribes Yes, thank you um, for all the incredible work. So the Penobscot Nation is one of five tribes that make up the Wabanaki Confederacy. The others are the Abenaki, the Passamaquoddy, the Mi'kmaq, and the Maliseet. And there are five tribal communities in the land now called Maine, and their ancestors have been stewards of this homeland for over 10,000 years. Their creation stories and cultural knowledge tell us that this land has sustained us since time immemorial. And with this rich and deep relationship, the Wabanaki have here with these lands, 
also an undercurrent of injustice and trauma from the colonization era to the present day. Molly Ann's going to be addressing this today, and I encourage you all to welcome her with a warm welcome to the stage here. Welcome, Molly Ann. Well, good morning, everyone. Let me get situated here. Welcome back to the Common Ground Fair. From the looks of it, uh, there's, it's very well attended and a great reopening. So congratulations to the organizers. And thank you so very much for having me here today. The wind always likes to let us know who's boss. Welcome to Wabanaki Ancestral Homeland. So happy to uh, be sharing with you today. And as was noted, I do have a four-month-old child, so I've been talking to a baby <laughs> for four months and not doing a whole lot of public speaking. So uh, I feel very uh, warm and welcome here, and, and it's a great way to ease back into work life and talking about these topics that are so passionate and near and dear to me. Sarah did a wonderful job setting up this talk. I want to highlight the efforts for tribal sovereignty restoration in Maine. And I like to say restoration. I don't like to say that the state of Maine grants us anything or gives us anything. Wabanaki tribes are inherently sovereign. We've never ceded that. So the work that we're all so intensely involved in right now is really having that sovereignty recognized. So I hope by the end of our time together, I'll shed some light on the, the past few years, a lot of which has been in the news quite a bit, and really where we go from here and how we can do that together. I think we're at a very historic moment where the issues facing the tribes in Maine aren't just something we're struggling with internally. We've really set a big table and invited a lot of people to work on this with us. And this, I see, is an extension of that. It's never lost on me that tribal leaders generations before me weren't heard. There was a lot of kind of screaming into a void about these things, um, you know, fighting for Mother Earth, fighting for sovereignty, fighting for accurate representation of our people, fighting against harmful stereotypes. So many people did that before me and did not have the privilege of being listened to. So the fact that I get to stand here with all you fine folks and have an hour of your time and the ripples that will spread beyond this talk and, and, and everything we get to do in this work, I always feel so fortunate and I carry that as a very sacred responsibility. So we can get into the fun stuff now. <laughs> um, I like setting up discussions about tribal sovereignty and self-determination while talking a little bit about where we've been. And I don't like to do big, long, you know, trauma stories. You know, there's a lot of tragedy, there's a lot of hardship, but there's also so much strength and so much beauty in, in Wabanaki nations. And I think we're seeing that come to light recently in media and, and entertainment. And, you know, my family sits around and watches reservation dogs every week together. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so true. 
Uh, it, it's so accurate and good, and, and the fact that my kids get to see themselves uh, reflected like that means the world to me. So I will talk about some very sad things, but I want the focus to be on how that history informs our work going forward and, and how it is significant when we work on policy and when we work in government and how all of these things are connected. I've been fortunate to collaborate with Upstander Academy, and these are the folks that did the film Dawnland. Now, Dawnland is a look at the residential school system, the boarding school system, and the foster care system in Maine, and this movement across the United States and Canada by the government, uh, a lot of times by the church, to take indigenous children from their families and sort of you know, kill the Indian to save the man was the philosophy. And Don Lan, I would encourage you to see it if you haven't. It, it takes a look at just how recent this was. You know, people not that much older than me are, are coming out of these schools and these foster homes. And just the, the act of stealing children, taking them away from their families and indoctrinating them in a different culture while forcing them to forget their identity, that's brutal. On top of all of that, these schools and foster homes were often abusive, and we are now finding mass graves at some of these schools um, where the, the children were, were killed in these schools and buried there anonymously. So Dawnland encompasses that story. We worked on a short film together called Bounty. And this is sort of a follow-up to Dawnland, but it goes way back in time to kind of the, the colonial era and the formation of, of Massachusetts colony. Now, during that time, there were bounties placed on the, the bodies and scalps of indigenous people right here in our homeland. And the film Bounty focuses on one of those proclamations that targets Penobscot people specifically. And I would encourage you to see the film if you haven't. It's only about seven or eight minutes. And it's three Penobscot families sitting in the room in the old state house in Massachusetts where the proclamation was written. And we're reading it with our children. So we filmed it two or three years ago. Uh, so my kids are a little bit younger. And sitting in that room, reading these words and thinking about our people being hunted in our homeland it's something that we learn about as indigenous children coming up in our, our schools and the reservations, but I don't think a lot of people are, are really aware of this until we talk about it and make these films and these educational materials. So I bring this up because all of this work is really interconnected. The, the intergenerational trauma, the effects of this total attempted genocide in every way possible, flows down and it informs the work we do today. So when we think about these bounties, it, it you know kind of strikes, I, I would think most people as barbaric and why would this be a, a policy? Why would this be sanctioned by the government? You know, these are human beings. And I think that obviously a key part of this practice was erasing the humanity of, of Penobscot people and, and Wabanaki people. And another part was the quest for land. You know, the, the most 
big, for lack of a better word, resource, the most vast resource we have uh, as any human being is our property, right? We've always centered power in this country around property. So uh, in doing research for Bounty and learning about this, you learn about how a big motivating factor was to take the land from the Wabanaki to, you know, expand the colonies. So later, when Massachusetts, um, you know, when Maine leaves Massachusetts, a lot of the the treaties that oversaw this taking of land from the tribes to the new colony uh, or state of Maine, really, were not overseen by the federal government. This sets us up for the 1980 Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act and a lot of the recent work that we're doing. So not only does this theme of land and power and control kind of echo through the generations, a, a lot of that trauma and sadness and darkness also follows in this work. So when you see tribal leaders testifying in the legislature or doing events like this or even meeting with each other, it's not words on a paper for us. It's not just policy and law and and legislator proceedings. It's deep. It's, you know, fighting for those ancestors. It's remembering everything from colonization up until now and trying to heal from that while we do this work. So I have such immense respect for all the the tribal leaders I get to work with and really all the tribal citizens that trust us to, to carry this out. In my formative years as a teenager, I got to have two experiences that, you know, I talk about a lot because they set up a lot of this you know, journey that I've had. And one of them is centered around the Penobscot River. Now my father, Barry Dana, served as chief of the Penobscot Nation. And back then we had two year terms. So he was elected twice and he served for four years. And during that time there was a, a court proceeding and it was Great Northern Paper versus Penobscot Nation. Now, the gist of this case, I'm not a lawyer, so details may get fuzzy, but I do my best. I was there. (laughs) Um, The details of the case are the paper industry, three different mills uh, led by Great Northern Paper, uh, produced a Freedom of Information Act request to the Penobscot Nation requesting uh, tribal council meeting minutes and natural resources data and the the overall tension about all of this was water quality standards who gets to set you know the standards for how clean the Penobscot River will be and of course the inherent conflict is the Penobscot nation would like the water as clean as possible because it is part of our ancestral territory it houses the fish that sustain us and it you know is the lifeblood of our people and the the paper mill industry would like to pollute more so they would like those standards to be less and when i think about this pollution and this industry and this real interference with our way of life it feels just as much of a disruption of our sacred connection as some of those stories of the bounties and the schools. It's all sort of the same violence and harm when you think about it. It's really an attack. So this court case, uh, the, the tribe contended that these materials were internal tribal matters and that we would not turn them over. I'll fast forward a bunch through legal stuff, but I went to the court proceeding with my dad when he was chief 
And at the end of that proceeding in the main judicial court in Portland, the judge decided against the tribes, the Passamaquoddy had joined in our lawsuit as well, and sentenced the chiefs, my dad and, and the two Passamaquoddy chiefs, to jail for not turning over these documents to the paper companies. And they imposed a fine of $1,000 per day on our tribal communities for every day these documents weren't handed over. So at the time, being a teenager, it feels unfair. It feels scary for my dad. It feels, you know, all of these visceral things. Now, through the lens of this career that I'm embarking on and these things I've learned in my adult life, I see how these systems that are set up to oppress and marginalize really take care of themselves. And, you know, when they are oppressing a people it's super easy to continue that oppression, even when it's clearly right and wrong. So we handed over these documents, and we did so in a sort of a protest march. And the beginning of the march was in Norridgewock, Maine. Norridgewock is the site of a historic massacre of our people. The, the people living on the Kennebec River in Norridgewock were uh, Abenaki people, and a priest was living amongst them. Now the English forces wanted to capture this priest and in the process massacred this band of people. Some of those people did come into Penobscot and Passamaquoddy territories, uh, so they are also our ancestors, the ones that survived the massacre. So this protest march goes from Norridgewock to Augusta. There's drumming, there's marching, there's chanting and singing, and the documents are handed over. And I remember thinking, they're calling this a sovereignty march, but it doesn't feel very sovereign. It doesn't feel like anyone's listening to us or cares. But I also remember feeling the spirit of the day and that thinking that maybe sovereignty also means really protecting what is sacred, even when it's really hard. Also as a teenager, I was invited to testify on a bill part forth by Donald Soctoma, who was the Passamaquoddy state representative. My great aunt, Donna Loring, was a Penobscot tribal representative and did a great job of getting a lot of women in the room, uh, mainly women, to testify on a bill that would remove a racial slur for indigenous women that starts with an S and I don't like to say it. It would remove that word from place names in Maine. There was kind of uh, most well-known was probably a ski resort that, that had that name until very recently because it was a private business. So I remember testifying on this bill. I had already been called this word by somebody I went to high school with in a very violent, harmful context. And I remember listening to uh, indigenous women of all ages, mostly Wabanaki women, talk about the experiences they had with this word, ranging from experience like, like experiences like mine, where no physical harm had taken place, to hate crimes and, and really um, you know, tragic acts. And this bill became law. And it didn't matter, Democrats or Republicans, it didn't matter the side of the aisle or the background of people or the age. People listened to the stories of this testimony and these women coming forward, and they found it in them to agree. So I had these two experiences, and, and one of them showed me just how powerful these systems can be to break. And another experience showed me that when you appeal to the humanity of people, 
it's possible to find common ground and it's possible to make change. So fast forward a little bit more to the work recently and we talked about the, the bill to remove Indian mascots, the bill to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. We also have kind of the meat and potatoes work of amending that Settlement Act and, and that kind of you know, more lasting and um, practical change. And I think sometimes people say, well, sure, you got the symbolic stuff done. You got that low-hanging fruit. You changed the mascots, you know, great. And I like to say that it's all very much connected. And if you should fix those, if you can fix those symbolic things, you absolutely should because it makes a big difference. When people see you as less than human, they will treat you as less than human. And that's been part of the struggle of these past 40 plus years since the Settlement Act has been enacted, that we've had these you know, stereotypical tropes out in society in Maine. You know, I had my kind of awakening about Indian mascots when I was in high school. I guess those were big years for me. <laughs> and I remember seeing my peers from other schools wearing feathers and, um, you know, fake face paint and war paint and hopping around and mocking us. And, you know, how can you get anything done with people that see you as a joke or a caricature and want to steal and appropriate your culture and have no idea why that's wrong? Now, I've thought a lot about this recently with the struggle over the, the border and the migrants coming in and how these poor humans are being used as political pawns. And that is such a clear example of when you strip the humanity away from a people, you will treat them as objects. So when we work on these Indian mascots and we work to change them and we decide not to celebrate Columbus because of his genocidal tactics and legacy, when we instead honor Indigenous Peoples Day, that really sets the stage for lasting, honest communication between everybody involved. The 1980 Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act has been the center of a lot of our work the past couple of years. And it was mentioned that I'm the president of the board of directors of the Wabanaki Alliance. And that group came about because all of the chiefs and tribal leaders had really been connected and unified in a way that hasn't happened in a very long time. So we sort of seized on that moment, created this core group, and it's expanded to create this huge coalition of folks from all around the state, from environmental groups to faith organizations to individuals and businesses and I can't say enough how thankful we are for that allyship and that leadership around the state of this broad coalition we formed and the work has been trying to correct a historical wrong and the 1980 Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act, as I've previously mentioned, had to do with two-thirds of the state of Maine being illegally taken from the tribal nations. So how do we fix that? We tried. <laughs> and I really don't hold grudges or place blame on anybody working in 1980 for the tribes, because at the time, it was pretty much unheard of for tribes to reach these, you know, agreements with different states in a way that that truly benefited the tribes. There was always kind of these hangups and then these, um, you know, putting the tribes at a disadvantage. And that's what's happened here. So the settlement was reached 
President Jimmy Carter was in office and he was very likely to sign something. Our negotiators were told that Ronald Reagan would not be likely to sign anything. So there was kind of this, and we still see this today in, in politics around tribal issues, right? It's like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, make decisions, uh, crunch time. You're never going to have this environment again. So so let's get done what we can. And, and back then, this was a big deal. Uh, the tribes did get funds to buy back land from the federal government. However, the problematic language in the Settlement Act is it, it is a couple things. One thing is it really relegates the tribal nations to municipalities in Maine. So the, the court case I talked about, part of the reason we lost was, you know, tribes are in this ambiguous area where we are federally recognized, but because of the Settlement Act, we're treated like municipalities in Maine. And that flows through to another uh, case about our river that I, that I will get to shortly. Another piece of problematic language in the Settlement Act is a provision that blocks the tribes in Maine from having access to any federal legislation meant to benefit tribes. So since 1980, there have been many laws passed that will benefit tribes or are meant to benefit tribes that the Maine tribes have been left out of, even though we're federally recognized. So you combine all this, and, and it's really been the source of tension in this tribal state relationship for ever since it was adopted. My position of ambassador that I hold currently exists because in 2015, the tribal state relation with the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy had gotten so bad, and probably all the tribes, but we were the ones with representatives that left. It had gotten so bad that we did pull our representatives from the state legislature. And uh, the Penobscot Nation created the ambassador position. The, the Maliseet tribe actually, just within the past year, has appointed their first ambassador, which is awesome. And the Passamaquoddy did decide to re-elect a representative uh, four years ago now, and that was Representative Rena Newell, who is serving out her term right now, who did some incredible work that we'll get into. So when we came into the 129th legislature, there was this feeling of Democrats have control of the governor's office, the House, and the Senate. And historically, Democrats have been more favorable to these tribal issues, not always. And we were getting a lot of requests from different lawmakers to put in bills to, to fix the tribal state relationship, to really address this problem. And so many of the bills were centered around the Settlement Act. We decided to really take a, a strong push in that direction. And the leadership at the time was former Speaker Sarah Gideon and Senate President Troy Jackson. And they got together with all the tribal chiefs and this idea for a task force was created. So the task force was the tribal chiefs, bipartisan lawmakers, the former chairs of the Judiciary Committee. And over the course of, of six meetings or so, they studied that Settlement Act and they produced a set of consensus recommendations to amend that Settlement Act. And th these areas are any, everywhere from criminal and civil jurisdiction to fish and game, um, taxation, gaming, which we'll get into, it's its own thing. <laughs> and so these, this set of recommendations, minus gaming, was put into a bill. The pandemic ended that session. We came back, put into a new bill, LD 1626. Uh, sponsored by Assistant Majority Leader Rachel Talbot Ross out of Portland, who is most likely one of the most powerful, dynamic leaders Maine will see in, in my lifetime. 
So we're so happy to have her as a champion of this legislation. And this bill kind of ran parallel with uh, negotiations with the governor's office. And uh, Governor Mills, in her former career as an attorney general, was engaged in litigation against the Penobscot Nation over the question of whether or not the river is our ancestral territory or not. We contend that it is. We've lost that case all the way through uh, a full circuit appeal in the first district court in Boston, and we've also been denied by the Supreme Court to hear that case. So that's sort of how that ends for now. But we do have this relationship with the governor. So the governor did veto a gaming bill that we put forth in in the previous legislature by Representative Ben Collings out of Portland, who's another steadfast champion for our people. And when she vetoed the gaming bill, she committed to working with the tribes on provisions that she could live with uh, when it comes to amending the Settlement Act and, and creating things for the tribes going forward. So running parallel to 1626 was this bill, LD-585, which did ultimately pass, and that uh, granted some taxation provisions to the tribes of Maine, some gaming provisions. Uh, it essentially granted rights to a new industry of online sports betting, and it also set up a system of better collaboration between the tribes and the state. There was also, I'll I'll give you the good news first, then we'll come back to 1626. There was also an effort put forward by Representative Rena Newell, the Passamaquoddy tribe, uh, LD906, and that was looking at getting the Passamaquoddy tribe at Sabayat clean drinking water because in 2022, they did not have clean drinking water and they haven't for decades. So that seems like a very straightforward, simple thing to get on board with, and it really wasn't. (laughs) Um, In Judiciary Committee, we saw a whole lot of resistance from from a few members and a whole lot of, you know, losing sight of that humanity. You know, it, it became not about getting people clean drinking water. It became about power and control for some folks. The good news is, we did ultimately, at the end of the day, get that bill passed into law, and, and that was just a huge legislative legislative achievement for everyone. 1626 was the bill with probably the most attention and, and the most work around it. Um, so this was that set of task force recommendations. And if any of you were on Zooms with me of the past two years, which pro- some of you probably were, you've heard me talk about this endlessly. And uh, so I won't get into the nitty gritty, but 1626, you know, passed the House, uh, passed the Senate once, was sent to appropriation, sent back to Senate, and ultimately died there. And we were saddened by the resistance of the governor to embrace these changes. We were saddened by the ultimate outcome. But it gave us a lot to work with going forward. We do have these very solid recommendations We do have a lot of allies and friends in the legislature, and we do have a huge network of allies throughout the state. So that kind of brings me nicely to where do we go from here? And I think some of the best work that's been done is just human to human work. It's explaining a lot of this history and how it echoes through our shared um, realities now. 
So when I think about moving forward, I get really excited about the Wabanaki Alliance. We've recently put out a scorecard and endorsements. We did not endorse anyone in the governor's race. We did not make that decision lightly. I will tell you there was no consideration to endorse uh, former Governor LePage. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, but we did take a look at the record of, of Governor Janet Mills and you know, she she did work with us on the mascot bill, the Indigenous Peoples Day bill. We talked a little. It was mentioned um, that we did get Violence Against Women Act legislation in Maine. And that's really important because that highlights that discrepancy that we've been dealing with at the federal level. So the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization of 2013 um extends services and jurisdiction and resources to federally recognized Indian tribes. The tribes in Maine were not able to access that. And, and this was, you know, a, a glaring example of that inequity that continues because of the Settlement Act. So what we did was we worked hard to, to have ourselves, we can get into these laws if we're specifically mentioned. So we were doing that work with our federal delegation. We also worked in the state with lawmakers here to, to craft a law to put that jurisdiction into our tribal communities that have tribal courts. And at the time, that was Penobscot and Passamaquoddy. So this was really important because these jurisdictional mazes can be extremely detrimental and have real world consequences. When we have domestic violence victims in our communities and the perpetrator is not native, we were unable to take those cases into our tribal courts. And when we kind of kicked them into state courts, a lot of times the jurisdiction was questioned again. Uh, the victims are re-traumatized, having to go a lot of different places. And we rarely, if ever, saw any justice in those cases. So that was a great thing we did together. Now, moving forward, we have a new federal law taking shape, sponsored by Congressman Jared Golden, uh, who is endorsed by the Wabanaki Alliance. And... This is H.R. 6707, and this bill would make any federal law benefiting tribes going forward applicable to Maine tribes. Currently, yes, we need it. Yes. <laughs> Currently, we are lacking a champion in the Senate for this. It's attached to two different vehicles. One vehicle will go to the committee where Senator King has jurisdiction, and he has opposed it right out. Um, this provision. The other vehicle will go to the committee where Senator Collins has jurisdiction, and she has not opposed it, but she has expressed concerns. So something quick you can do today is ask each of our senators to support H.R. 6707. Uh, it's Advancing Equity for Wabanaki Nations Act. And we'll hopefully see developments on that over the fall. So back to the Wabanaki Alliance um, scorecard and endorsements. We, we did not endorse a governor and candidate, but we are happy to continue the discussion with Governor Mills should she be reelected. We did grade her as incomplete. We talked about the, the things we've done well together. We talked about her opposition to not just 16, uh, 1626, but also the federal bill she has opposed. Um, so if we're going to move forward, we have to come to some common ground about what sovereignty really means and what tribal self-determination really should look like in the state of Maine. 
I'm looking through my notes and I think I've hit on a lot of things. Um, yeah, the Wabanaki Alliance is also working on some civic engagement in our communities and really uh, becoming a, a great advocacy arm that, that I'm very excited about. And um, yeah, I'm happy to be getting back into this work after my maternity leave and, and great to share all of this with all of you. I, I gave the talk to my daughter three times yesterday and she cried through all of it. <laughs> So uh, she prepared me for all of you who are much, much nicer to me. <laughs> uh, I would love to have some questions if anyone has them. If not, I'm sure I can find more things to share with you. Are there any questions? Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Great question. How can we stay up to date with the proceedings of, of everything I've talked about? And so Wabanaki Alliance has a uh, webpage, wabanakialliance.com. We also are on all the social medias. Well, we're on Facebook and Instagram, and I believe our lovely communications person is getting us on TikTok as well. I don't have that. I don't know what it is, So, <laughs> but we will be on there too. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yes. Senator King has met with some tribal leaders, and his whole take on this is that the settlement, any amendments to the Settlement Act, uh, he sees that as an agreement, and he thinks both parties should be in agreement on any changes to it. So he says if we can work with the state of Maine to finalize amendments, he's okay with supporting the bill, but he sees it as a state-level thing and not something in the federal government. And that's an important thing to think about because it it's a good example of how the relationships are muddied here because we do have federal recognition and a lot of our rights should be at that level. But the Settlement Act has really made things cloudy for us. So that's Senator King's kind of main opposition to the bill. Correct. So the Settlement Act, it's kind of in two parts. There's a main Indian Land Claim Settlement Act, which is the United States government and the state of Maine. Uh, and the tribes. And the state actually didn't put any money into the settlement. It was all federal funds. Then there's the main implementing act, uh, which is what implemented it in the state. So you're, you're totally right. All the, the money came from the federal government. Yes. Yes, Lloyd is amazing for the way he holds it down. <laughs> This is my my life partner. Boyfriend seems so trivial. <laughs> uh, father of my daughter, Lloyd Bryant, who takes incredible care of her and is, uh, in every sense of the word, the wind beneath my wings. Any other questions? Yes. So the, the tribe having the drinking water crisis is the Passamaquoddy at Sabayak, and now they are working on getting new filtration systems and, and fixing that problem. There, there's also legal things, um, because the bill passed, they're able to work on now. And for the past, I don't know, a few decades or so, I don't know if they've ever had very clean drinking water. They've been boiling the water and drinking bottled water and um, you know, taking precautions like that. It's, it's really a travesty. Yes. 
How does the governor justify her longstanding opposition to these efforts? Did I get it? Okay. So the the governor kind of maintains that the LD 1626 with all of the task force recommendations was too big, too broad, um, and that she would like a more piecemeal approach. And I think at the end of the day, there aren't a whole lot of specifics out of her office that we can point to. Uh, it's just kind of this broad, vague opposition to these big changes. And it feels a lot like, you know, being very pro-Maine and wanting to maintain as much control as possible over things and, and really believing that Maine can do the right thing, even in the face of examples where that hasn't worked well for the tribes. So without getting into her kind of psyche, I think that's the best take I have. Yeah. Yes. That is true. Um, the question was, isn't it true that every other federally recognized tribe in America doesn't have this issue that we have here with access to federal legislation? And that's right. So since 1980, I believe there have been 500-ish, more than 500 laws passed um, that we haven't had access to. So that's um, that's a lot, and, and that's been a lot uh, to deal with. And every other tribe, and, and even in some states, they have settlement agreements with the state over different lawsuits and, and land claims. Um, and there isn't that restrictive language like we have to deal with. Yeah, we are very unique in that. Oh, go ahead. Why don't the main tribes have that access? So that goes back to the crafting of that settlement and the state negotiating team really didn't want the tribes to have any increased self-determination or, or abilities. So there were efforts, uh, well, language put in to really hamstrung the tribes. And, and that's been, um, you know, and, and this is, again, we talk about those systems of power and control and oppression. When you have a group of people at a disadvantage and this trickles down from those bounties and colonization and theft of children and resources, when you have people in a corner like that, it's easy to dangle land money you know over here while you're putting language in over here and, and then people agree to it because you know some of our communities were all of our communities were living in real states of poverty and the the thought of having any advantages you know was something they really couldn't refuse so it's a really unfortunate situation yes So if I understand your question right, is, are there efforts right now to retroactively get all the acts that we haven't had access to applicable to Maine tribes? Unfortunately, not really, <laughs> until we can um, re-engage with the state legislature. Part of 1626 was exactly what you're saying. It was you know, making it so our tribes can, can access all the federal law. Uh, Jared Golden's bill is only prospective. So that like any law coming, if a law came out, you know, the day after that pass, hopefully it passes, uh, we would be able to be included. So it, it's not retroactive. So I think we haven't crafted any new legislation for the next session. But when we do, I assume we'll be looking at those task force recommendations and, and access to federal law is right at the top of the list. So great question. 
Yes. Sure, a uh, question about land back, a great topic. <laughs> so there's a lot of land trust developing and, and a movement to get land back in the hands of the tribes. And, and that's a really wonderful movement that's come about. Um, I think that those instances are happening kind of individually. The Passamaquoddy have had great luck with, with acquiring some ancestral land uh, back into their community. And I, I think it'll be kind of on an individual basis as these parcels become available, um, making those connections and maintaining those relationships so that we have a process in place for getting land back into the tribes. Representative Collings had a bill in the last um, legislature that ultimately failed, and, and it was to set up a process for kind of land back parcels. So hopefully he can pick that back up, and, and I'd definitely be happy to work with him on that. That's a great question. I believe I saw my sister here. Yeah, that's my sister in the black hat. Her name's Sigourney Dana. And she's, um, I think, a founding member, at least on the board, of Bumazim Land Trust that um, is a native-run um, nonprofit that looks into those issues as well. Anybody else? Well, it's been really, really great to share with you all. I, I do want to put in a plug for the Maine Indian Basket Makers Tent. I know that they have a long, rich history uh, with the fair. And I'm just really excited for where we go from here. I want to thank you for you know, listening to a lot of this history. And the part of the title of the talk that I really wanted to stress the most was that connectedness. And that doesn't just mean history and how history connects to today or how my ancestors connect to me. It really has to do with how we connect to each other. And I'm excited that even in the face of these oppressive institutions that, that really you know, have an interest in keeping tribes back sometimes and, and put a lot of oomph behind that interest. We also have this real grassroots, um, powerful thing happening where we're talking to Mainers everywhere and getting so much support on these issues. And I remember, you know, back when I was seeing my dad go through this and, and getting arrested in a courtroom for protecting uh, the Penobscot River, it, it would have been unheard of probably to have so many different people from so many different backgrounds coming together only to work on tribal issues. You know, in our Wabanaki Alliance Coalition, we have folks with PR uh, expertise, we have digital content experts, we have all these people that freely volunteer to work on our behalf. And, and that's so powerful to me. And I feel, you know, when we talk about these bounties and, and what our different ancestors did to each other, I think sometimes there can be some guilt either placed or felt. And, and I would love us all to get to a place where we acknowledge the past, we are aware of the harm and the benefits and the loss and, and how that shapes our present today in, in a place of real honesty and truth. And we can leave all of the bad feelings behind and work on a more equitable future together. Thank you. Chiwiliwini. Thank you.
and didn't blow anything away. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. Let's hear it one more time for Molly Ann. Thank you so much for being here today. That concludes our keynote for today. Um, thank you so much for being here. We hope everybody has a wonderful day at the fair. Come back tomorrow for our keynote at 11. It's Francis Moore LePay. <laughs>